BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today I have with me Ellen Galinsky, who is a trailblazer superstar in the field of child development and education and just life in general. And she's written many books. One of them is called Mind in the Making. And the reason I'm pointing that one out is because in that book, she goes through and takes executive function-based skills and really talks about them in terms of the real life skills that our kids need beyond what you think of when you think of school and learning the reading, writing, and arithmetic is not the only thing. So those skills are coming up a lot more, especially during COVID and how to promote them inside the home. And also we're talking about just generally an opportunity mindset raising kids. So let me tell you a little bit more about Ellen in the show notes because her bio is really long. She's also the chief science officer at the Bezos Family Foundation and founder and president of the Family Work Institute, and the list is long. This is a trusted resource and dear friend. And she's also the grandmother of a seven-year-old who is giving her a, a little bit more insight into the experiences of kids really in real time, along with her decades of experience and research. And if you listen through this podcast, not only are we going to talk about helping build that sort of autonomy and all the yummy stuff kids are capable of that we don't necessarily allow them to be capable of or believe them to be capable of or um, give them time to get capable of. So strategies there. And also we are talking about problem solving with our kids instead of at our kids and how effective that can be in generally easing some of the tension in the household. And we're also going to talk a little bit about taking on challenges for ourselves as parents, for our kids, and that, you know, there are some counterintuitive things to taking on challenges. It's not just about a mindset and how you think, but then how you go about moving forward and thinking through what the obstacles are and we'll get to it and you'll see, but I think this is a really great episode to motivate all of us and it doesn't take too much. If you enjoy this episode, I would love to encourage you to subscribe if you haven't and rate if you have something nice to say, write a little review. And um, as always, you can reach out to me on DM on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. I mean, all teaching, whether it's young children all the way up through high school or beyond, is both caring for the person. People need their needs met in order to learn. They need to be safe. They need to be not hungry. They need to be, feel that they belong. They need to feel that they're respective and they need to feel that they're challenged, those sorts of developmental needs at every age. And then they need to learn, which I separate out from teaching. Learning is, is what really matters. Somebody can teach you something and you can, we all remember that we don't remember some of the tests we crammed for all night when we were younger. You have to really learn something for it to matter. Mm -hmm. So kids need caring for and they need opportunities to learn. 
those th- at, at every age and, and those aren't separate, but we haven't learned that in early childhood. So I worry about early childhood a bit during the pandemic. Do you think I worry a lot about early childhood? Right. I know I'm trying, I'm trying hard not to worry about it. No, that's not true. I'm worrying about it very much, but there is a part of me that feels like I don't want to say it out loud because who needs to worry people more? Um, But at the same time, it also feels like how many times can we say, well, kids are adaptable and resilient, so we'll figure this out. There's a little part of me that feels like everybody knows that's not true all the time. And this is an example of a time that we haven't seen before. So I wonder, but then I also, you know, I think on the flip side, parents who do not want to be teachers, this is not, this is not, it's not easy, but I wonder if the at-home engagement that maybe parents didn't even value as really important learning can be highlighted a little bit so we can value it more and realize, okay, today was not a great school day or t- today's school couldn't happen, but we also played a board game and made you know a recipe, followed a recipe, and I, now I'm not going to think of anything, sort of the laundry and that those moments, which if anybody reads Mind in the Making, you can pull out any of those life skill building experiences, you can have real learning. And maybe that's, you know, something to hold on to for the parents of younger kids. Well, you just got to the crux of what I ended up feeling in the early days of the pandemic, which is, yes, it makes it clear what it means to teach and take care of children. And we're not going to be a teacher in the traditional sense that we know how to teach or help children learn literacy, as you said, and numeracy. And, you know, we may not have all of that content knowledge, but what we can really do is promote life skills that we can do that every teacher in a school, you know, birth through whatever should be doing. And that as a parent's birth through whatever we should be doing. And so you just mentioned some of the most important skills that I found in Mind in the Making, which is helping kids learn to take on a challenge. Right. Um, And then you said, you said learning to be resilient. I'd sort of move that on to learning to take on a challenge. Uh And then helping kids be self-directed, engaged learning. Uh, My seven-year-old said this morning on FaceTime to me, I'm bored when his mommy wouldn't let him play whatever game he wanted to play with me. Um, And I said, fabulous, you know, make an I'm bored list. And that's what I did with my own kids. They had I am bored lists where, which they put up the things they like to do when they were bored. And in the beginning they would come to me and whine and, and then, you know, eventually they would just look at their lists and have things that they were interested in. So it's a time for us as parents to, find that little spark, whatever it is, and we don't have to like it. And they're not necessarily going to grow up and do it, but kindle that spark and, and a few others. Having more than one thing going in our lives is a good thing, having things that we're interested in. So that's really a time. So answering their questions with more questions rather than answers is one way that we can do that. Studies of learning have found again and again and again that even saying, I wonder, rather than giving the answer, giving a pause, helping children answer their own questions. Studies of curiosity, for example, have found that if you give kids the answer, you know, information answer, question, answer, question, answer, which is what a lot of school is like, question, answer, question, answer, without having children begin to answer their own questions, which is the crux of learning. That's how we really learn things. I'm reading a book on learning right now. (laughs) that says that, but I could see that in the research on younger children too. We'll promote self-directed engaged learning, which is one of the skills in Mind in the Making. And what you've also just done is take something that's a challenge and turn it into an opportunity, which is one of the things that I've been trying to figure out in my latest book, which is why um, I suggested we call our uh, conversation today uh, a conversation about opportunity mindsets because- Uh at least for me, that's my biggest challenge is to try to understand what is going on when we want to do something and we don't do it. And then can that help us be able to live up to the kind of parents or teachers or people we want to be? 
Addiction is an epidemic in this country. Clean Cause is on a mission to support recovery in America. So 50% of the profits support individuals in recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. Clean Cause gives where you swig and allocates sober living scholarships across the country where you can drink clean. To date, Clean has granted over 1,500 sober living scholarships representing more than $750,000. Clean Cause beverages are organic, sparkling yerba mate, and they contain 160 milligrams of better caffeine. Clean Cause drinks provide a smooth sailing pick-me-up and sustained energy without the crash or jitters. Great for keeping focused at work or to boost your workout or to just keep up with everything going on. And it's available in eight refreshing, low and no calorie, low and no sugar flavors, including blackberry, watermelon, mint, peach, and cherry lime. Clean Cause beverages are USDA organic, plant-based, and contain natural flavors. And it's available nationwide at Whole Foods, on Amazon, and at cleancause.com. So take 20% off your next purchase at cleancause.com using the code HUMANS. And remember, every purchase makes a big difference in support of addiction recovery. That's 20% off your next purchase at cleancause.com using the code HUMANS. I'm Arielle Laurie, host of the Blonde Files podcast, where every Wednesday I cover all things wellness. After nearly dying from drugs and alcohol six years ago, I've been on a mission to live my best, most fulfilled life, and I'm sharing everything with you. From how to achieve optimal health, well-being, and fulfillment, to the best beauty tips and even cosmetic procedures, I cover it all with raw, candid conversations with experts and inspirational guests. Make sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Will you expand and explain a little bit? We have, of course, had this conversation already, um, and we'll probably have a million more. But what um, what kinds what what mindset are you trying to capture in this opportunity mindset? Well, I hope we have this conversation a million times more because I am in the middle, maybe toward the end of what I think of as learning journeys, I always, I, my whole life has been following questions. So no wonder I think that that's a good yeah. idea, but we always, it's research is me search. That's right. But, um, but the question that I've had lately is why don't we do what we wish we would do as parents? We can have perfectly great goals and we don't always do them. And I saw, I've seen that in every book that, uh, I've done looking at the stages of development. I discovered there that when we have an expectation, we expect ourselves to be not yell at our kids or, you know, not snap a, a crazy COVID day and we snap mm-hmm. at them and we wish we didn't, or we say the things to our kids that maybe our parents said to us, uh, I hope your face freezes that way. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if you jump off of that ledge, you're going to break your neck, you know, I hope your kids give you one-tenth the trouble that you've given me, all those sorts of things that parents, you know, if you do that, you're, you're going to be taken to jail, I'm going to call the police or mm-hmm. um, those sorts of things. We, we wish we wouldn't say them because they're not terribly effective, but then we do. And so I found that if we expect something and then it doesn't come true, we can either stay stuck or we can change our expectation to either be more realis- realistic or we can live up to our expectations. So that was an insight a long time ago when I wrote the book, The Six Stages of Parenthoods, that it's those moments of difficulty that become the genesis of our own growth and development as parents. So in the current book that I'm working on, I ask uh, young people, what are the most important parenting skills? And I ask their parents too. So I did a nationally representative study. I and my colleagues, Brandon Almey and Phil Zalazzo, of the University of Minnesota. We did a nationally representative study of close to 2,000 young people and their parents. And then over the summer, I personally interviewed about 60 of those families and their adolescents. And in the 
in-person interviews, I ask, what are the most important parenting skills? And that was a question I never asked before. It's really a totally cool question because I got great answers. But they are summarized, both what parents and what adolescents said, by this young man whom I call Joshua. Okay. He said three things are important. And, this, and then it just, every, what everyone else fit into these three things. He was like this incredible student of people's behavior. I think my grandson has a little of that. Um, so he said, listen more than you talk. And parents would often say good communication and listening, not just jumping in too fast. The second thing was listen with your, when I was a child mind, not just now I'm an adult mind. And that's important because the, the not just is important. We are the adult. So we have to listen from our adult perspective, but to remember how it feels to be an adolescent or a toddler to understand their development. Lots and lots of studies show that parents who can take the child's perspectives do a much better job of parenting. They can understand their child's development. And in this particular study of adolescence, I'm finding that parents who don't understand the adolescent years, who think that they're just immature kids or just immature adults, don't do as well, irrespective of their child's behavior. So. I want to uh, I want to keep on this, but while since you just said that about the immature adults, will you use your analogy to what that sounds like if you're talking about other ages? Yeah, yeah. There has been brain research in adolescence, and I, I'll I'll remember the third thing and and explain the second skill in a moment. So this is a sorry pause. about that. I just it's a pause because it was a really important point that you've made, um, yeah. and then we'll go back to the third. Yeah. So I was sitting in a conference of neuroscientists and they were discussing, um, this was September a year ago, exactly a year ago, and they were discussing what, what the public thought of the adolescent brain. And I thought, hey, I'm doing a study. I can ask that question. So I asked the question, when you hear the words, the adolescent brain or the teen brain, what one word comes to mind? Well, people had more than one word sometimes, but sometimes a phrase, but what I found was only 14% of parents use positive words, 14% out of 100%, only 14%. It's really low. Yeah, really low. And that's actually other studies have found that this is not an anomaly. This is a nationally representative group, but it's not an anomaly. The rest were either neutral or negative. And among those three categories, positive, neutral, and negative, many words were about the adolescent is growing, changing, developing. So we pulled out those change words and there were two ways that you could look at them. One way was to look at whether or not it was a positive way of looking at change. Well, three ways actually. A positive way of looking, changing, growing, learning, discovering, you know, that kind of word or neutral or just changing or, you know, growing up or something like that or a negative word. And the most frequent word used by everyone in the survey was the word immature. And that was used by 9% of of parents. And if you just ask, you know, you think of the gazillion words in the English language and in Spanish, all the words you could use for uh, 9% to use exactly that word immature was important. And then another 7% used words like not developed, not formed, mush, incomplete, the not on anti uh, words like immature is a not mature word. Um, But we pulled immature out since it was just used so frequently. So altogether, the largest proportion of words that parents used were words that said that the adolescent is not a complete adult. And I thought at that moment of, well, yeah, you know, a baby cries. And we don't say that baby is an immature toddler. We know that that baby has to learn words, use your words, you know, as we're teaching them, those sorts of things. Or when a toddler gets feisty, I'll do it my way. You can't make me. I can fly. You know, all the things that toddlers Mm -hmm. can say. We don't say, oh, that toddler is an immature preschooler. We know that we need to teach them to do the things that they so desire to do. But when an adolescent does something that contests us, some of us, um, and I think it varies by child and varies by the situation, 
but some of us think that they are an immature and incomplete adult. And, and why? Well, they look, they look like adults, you know, so it's understandable. So we've asked questions about that in the time to study, and I'll tell you what we find next edition. Um, In this edition, I know that if parents use the word, use negative words, that their children were not thriving as reported by their children. Like they were less engaged in school. They were more likely to be in negative moods. Um, They were less likely to be in positive moods. They put less effort into school, those sorts of things. Um, So our parent mindset has, you're seeing. Yeah. Well, that was, that led me to another question. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll get there in a second. But what I found is that if we think of, of our kids as in a not way, in a negative way, in a not being grown up way, that it actually affects how they're doing regardless of their own behavior, because we could control for how parents perceive their own child, the negative words that they used about their own child in another question. So we could take those out of the analysis, hold them constant. And we found that over and above the way they see their own child, if you just see the adolescent as an immature adult, your child isn't likely to do as well. So that's important. But there was another mindset that I was trying to get at. That's part of it. And that is part of the mindset. But there was another mindset because if I go back to the skills, listen more than you talk, listen with perspective. perspective. Uh Oh, right. And what's the third? The third is involve uh, young people in Mm decision-making. If it's a problem about the child, if we're the problem, we have to be part of the solution. Don't just tell us what to do, but help us learn to fix problems for ourselves. And that goes along with autonomy support, which I've been studying for years because it's a precursor of executive function. And so we're going to dive into that. Yeah, it all makes sense. It all, (laughs) you know, it all correlates as they used to say in college. Well, sometimes it doesn't. And that's what gets interesting. So I thought, well, there's probably a mindset that stands in between our knowing those skills. I can know those skills. And my child could annoy me like crazy. And I could, what I think of as lose it and not do what I really want to do. I could just get into a rip roaring fight with my child and threaten and do whatever else. And why do I do that? So over the summer, I asked parents to describe a conflict that they had with their child. And then I told them that I was going to be asking a lot of questions about that kind conflict because I wanted to understand what was going through their mind. Because if I understood that better, it might be able to help other parents. So I did that. And um, first I realized you can't just ask about a conflict because a conflict can not be emotional. The conflict has to be emotional. For to us be a to conflict, lose. right. For us to lose it. And so I began to see that there was a mindset there, but I didn't know what it was. So I was starting to look, look at the stories that parents told me. And one was, so the opportunity mindset is basically that things won't change, that this, this is it. This is going to be this way forever. It's Groundhog Day. I'm just going to be in this situation forever. The child won't or can't change. I won't or can't change. And nothing I try will work. So it's those, those things that go together. I heard that through the stories of parents. For example, a mother who got into a, a, a fight with her daughter about going onto adult sites on the internet, and she describes her as stubborn. And when she, her daughter pushes her, she th- thinks that nothing will change. So she has to pull out all stops and she threatens to call the police. If you do the crime, you, you do the time is mm-hmm. what, what she said. Her daughter knows that she's not going to call the police. Of course. Um, but that's what she says she's going to do. What is Peanut? Peanut is an app that connects you with like-minded women throughout all stages of motherhood. And Peanut provides a safe space for mothers, expectant mothers, and those trying to conceive to build friendships, ask questions, and find support. Introducing you to women nearby who are at a similar stage in life, Peanut provides access to a community of women who are there to listen, share information, and offer valuable advice. Whether it's understanding IVF, adoption, pregnancy, first years, or nursery and beyond, Peanut is a place to connect with women like you. What I think is wonderful about Peanut is that we know from research that community and connection is so important for mental health. So when you have a place to go, especially at a time when there is no physical place to go, 
to meet up with people who are going through the experiences that you're going through or who have experienced them, it's a beautiful thing. My personal experience is that whenever you bring mothers together at whatever stage, they connect and making those connections and feeling seen and having an opportunity to have a space that's safe and non-judgmental where you can get all your questions out makes for happier, healthy mamas. Head to peanut.app.link slash raising good humans or just find it on your app store by plugging in peanut. So it's driven by fear for the child. In this case, this mother worried about her child being a follower and being susceptible to other kids. Now, that's an interesting story in itself, but I'll save that for another day. Hmm. It's that our adult experience can blind us to what kids are thinking and feeling. So it wasn't enough for this child to say, think about this when I was a child mind and not just now I'm an adult mind. Our adult perspective sometimes blinds us to what children are thinking and feeling. We look at it and we think, why can't they understand that that could be really dangerous? Some predator could be looking at this dance that my daughter is doing on TikTok or something and and come get my child in. So uh, without thinking about how the child thinks or feels, and I think that adult experience can blind us and it also can be um, a trigger too. I think it's, it can be driven by fear for the child. Uh, it can also be driven by fear in ourselves that we're not measuring up, that we're being graded as parents. So why do we write that paper for our child in the middle of the night when we really think that they should write it and risk they're getting a bad grade so that they'll learn? Or why do we drive the hockey stick to school Back. Right. or work? Or you know, why do we put their shoes on when they're little when we know that they can put their shoes on for themselves? We can see them as vulnerable. We can worry that they'll, you know, that they're more vulnerable. We can worry about their failure, um, I think. And we worry that we'll be judged negatively. We don't want to have that flip out in the supermarket because mm-hmm. everyone will, you know, rubberneck drivers around us in the days when we used to go to supermarkets and there were lots of people there. <laughs> uh, people were watching us to see, you know, like, look what that child is doing to that parent. Ha ha. <laughs> Or look what that parent is doing to the child is what the parent, but you know, there's, there, there are moments where you go, I, yeah. When you're self-conscious about your parenting is usually your worst, those are your worst moments. So I think that there is an opportunity mindset. I also think there's an adversity mindset and the adversity mindset are the things that are saying the opportunity mindset is we know it's not forever. We think that we can figure out what to do to make a change. We wonder how we can do that. And then we probably use some, some tactics to help us manage that. To begin in adolescence, we are driven to figure out how we can begin to manage on our own. And because our parents aren't always there. So that's what would worry me if a child doesn't want to try to figure out how to manage. And so I think what I worry about with adolescents is if they don't try to figure out how to do things on their own. Our fixing things for kids can stop that. But they also should want to try to figure out things on their own. And the example that comes to mind is, is my son, Philip. Um, he was 15 and we had just gotten home from work and school. And I was in the kitchen making still yet another work call and still in my dress up uh, New York City clothes. So I had on high heels and, you know, stuff that you can't run up the road in. And, um, and I, I'm looking out of the little window overlooking where our kitchen phone is. And all of a sudden I see our car going up the hill with Philip in it. Now, here are three problems with this. Philip is 15. He has never learned to drive. We have a stick shift. And well, it's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> it's a country road, but yeah. it's dangerous if someone is taking a car up a road and doesn't know how to drive up our driveway. So I throw down the phone. And I run up the hill as fast as a person can run in high heels, which is not fast. And you know the little country road I live on. It's very yeah. and and full of, you know, pits and rocks and stuff, Rockland County. 
It's rocky. And um, I finally get sort of a quarter of a mile down the road. I know because I walk that way with my dogs all the time. So I see on the steps how far I'm now going. And, um, and suddenly he's coming back. And by that time, I mean, I was terrible. I just thought, I'm sure he's going to crash. I mean, does he know which side of the road to drive on, doesn't he? he? We'd let him turn the car off and on, but we'd never taught him about gear shifts. It's not like driving an automatic. It isn't. <laughs> um, and he's coming down the road. And so the, the fear, the terror that he was going to be in some accident turns into fury. And, you know, he, he doesn't know how to stop. <laughs> oh, my God. He's going slowly enough for me to jump in. <laughs> I'm very stressed <laughs> out. You know, I was, I was just like, you know, in my mind, he was never driving, not even when he was 16, not even when he was 100. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was never driving again. <laughs> and he says to me very calmly, he says, I said to myself, you're not always going to be there to help me figure things out. I had to figure this out for myself. And I knew I didn't know how to turn, go backwards, put the car in reverse, in other words. So I had to find a place to turn around. And there is... Um, a turnaround place, you know, now about a mile up the road. And he turned around and he came back down the hill, always in first gear. And so it was going slowly enough for me to jump in and go down our driveway and, and I could tell him Stop. how to off. <laughs> yeah. But I thought, you know, he's right. He's right. You know, that was actually a mature attitude that he, he wanted, he knew he needed to figure it out for himself. Cause I, I wasn't up that road going up that road. If he could just given you a little heads up. <laughs> Believe me, he got driving lessons very soon. <laughs> he was going to be driven to drive. He was going to learn how to drive. That, the, but that example and all of this. And I think in the opportunity mindset category is going back to autonomy because we are, I mean, people struggle still. We all struggle to not fix things for our kids. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and you see it start so early. And I know you are very passionate about right out of the gate, asking, you know, toddlers questions, not just telling them what to do and helping them come up with their own solutions. At a, you know, where you're not just talking about a 15-year-old. Yes, and, and was it a good idea? Exactly. And jumping so, off. A very high ridge is maybe not a good idea, right? So the place where the where the I'm thinking of Zay yesterday because he was he loves to run on high rocks and jump off. You know, go down to a place where the rocks are closer to the road before you jump. Buffy makes bedding that is earth friendly and cruelty free. They've spent sleepless nights worrying about the impact the bedding industry has on the environment, so they decided to change it. Their products are made using only sustainable and recycled materials, which makes them as soft on the planet as they are on your bed. And their latest product, The Breeze, is a comforter made entirely from 100% eucalyptus fiber to regulate temperature and keep you cool and comfortable all night long. So that means no more night sweats and you can get cozy without overheating. The 100% plant-based design is breathable, The breeze is made of this eucalyptus fabric inside and out. So it's softer than cotton. It naturally soothes the skin. It's earth friendly because it uses 10 times less water than cotton to grow. And its fiber is produced using recyclable earth friendly solvents. Plus it's hypoallergenic. It's high thread count shuts out dust, mold, and mites for a healthier sleeping environment. And it's cruelty free. There's no down. So why not choose 100% plant-based bedding that's better for you and the earth? And you can try a comforter in your own bed for free. So if you don't love it, you return it at no cost. I was lucky enough to get to try this delicious comforter. So I know because I have terrible allergies, how much better it is and how much more comfortable I am. So for $20 off your Buffy comforter, visit buffy.com and enter the code HUMANS. Again, for $20 off your Buffy comforter, visit buffy.co and enter the code HUMANS. So actually, let's walk through that exact example because I think that when you hear don't fix things for kids and support their autonomy, and these are phenomenal opportunities to help kids do things for themselves and evaluate these different choices they might make because we are in a slower time. And also I think parents are exhausted and 
in some ways giving up a little bit of the control that might not have allowed for this autonomy support before, but now just people are like, uh, you know what, it would be great if you could learn to put your shoes on, or it would be great if you could learn to drive. So I would love to walk through an example of how with a younger child and then, you know, going on to an adolescent, you can engage them in problem solving and evaluating that problem solving, just like the, the, an example of the language to use, because I know you're so thoughtful about the language that you use. So give me an example. Give me an example. So why don't we start with a child wants to jump on the rocks and is really pushing it in terms of safety. Like you're getting an alarm bell, like this is not safe. So you want to have some boundary, but you also want him to explore and to learn how to decide which rocks to jump and which ones to say, whoa, this is not a good idea. So they don't just count on you to tell them. So Eliza, I would use your teaching and talk about creating a yes environment. <laughs> uh, but so at home where you know you can have them jump on a rug, presumably, or something else, you could set up varying things. You love to jump. That's fabulous. Jumping is such a good skill. So you've acknowledged you know, that. Yeah. Acknowledge the skill and say, so let's set up some practice things at home where you can jump and make sure that they're safe and begin to see what the child can do um, and let them start to get a sense of what they can do. So if they fall, really go back and look at it with them you know, what, what happened there? Your shoes weren't tied or you were running mm -hmm. too fast or, you know, it was higher or you bend your knees when you fall, you welcome the earth. As one person once told me. <laughs> That's <laughs> really great. Yeah. I love that. Um, you welcome the earth. Welcome. Huh. So you can't resist it. You have to bend into it. Uh-huh. Uh, so bending your knees when you jump, having your legs apart. So really looking at what helps you jump but helping the child do it in a way that is that you begin to feel trust to your child, that your child can become a good judge of what's safe and what's not safe. This is a safety issue. There are other things that aren't. And then if it's not a safety issue, you can well, let's really... do the giving up, you know, screen time, which is the yeah. oil during COVID. The COVID period. I think that, I mean, you have to start, if you're in the battle, yeah, you have yeah, you're to, in the battle. You're in the battle. So I think you have to begin to, and you have to mean it. You have to give the child, help your child learn how to manage that himself or herself. And, and I'll use my grandson as an example. Mm -hmm. He loves screen time much more than his mommy thinks he should. And <laughs> his mommy is his mommy. So she's, you know, she and, and uh, Ivy are the deciders about saying, not me. But we then have and just to just to paint the picture, his mommy is your daughter. <laughs> his mommy is my daughter. Yeah, and and I'm not shy, as you know. <laughs> I know for what I think, and she's used to that, so she can push back against me mm -hmm. um, nicely. So we had a family meeting once after tears, and and we're not over this yet. We're still in the middle of it, as you know. But we had a family meeting, and the first thing that about how to how to manage screen time better. And the real problem is that when it's time to give it up, he is so, my daughter would use the word addicted, to a game, you know, and, and they're made so that they addict you. So she's right. Uh, he's addicted to what he's playing that he doesn't want to stop. It's a game where you're, you know, you're constantly testing yourself, testing yourself, testing yourself. It's really fun. And so he needed the skill to stop. But the first thing he said in the meeting, and he whispered it, he was really afraid to say it, was it's not fair. Why isn't it fair? He was six at the time. And it wasn't fair because she's on her screen all of the time. That's what she said. He said it in a very quiet voice because I think he might have been a little afraid of what repercussions were of saying that, but he had clearly been thinking it a lot. Yeah. And uh, in a family meeting, no one can criticize anyone. There are rules about family meetings. You need to always be problem solving. Uh, and it has to work for everyone. And just be problem solving, no criticizing others. And yeah. And, and, you, and the, yes, you have to come up with many solutions and figure out one to try. Mm -hmm. And so that there are rules. But in this situation, she said, no, I'm not. She said, I have to work on my phone. 
And he said, because he had been studying this like, you know, a demon. No, you don't. I saw you talking to a friend and laughing and, and that wasn't work. I saw you reading an article that wasn't about work. I saw you playing a game and that wasn't work. No. In other words, you're a hypocrite. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not in those words, but it's not fair. And, you know, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds are all about fairness. Five-year-olds are all about what's fair. You know, the rules should matter. Okay. So we got to the point eventually in our family where all screen time is not bad. We're getting there anyway. But the trick is for him to be able to give it up when he says he'll give it up. That's the hard thing. And I think that that is the most important skill that he may ever learn in his life. Because all of us have things that we should don't want to give up when right eating too much, not exercising enough, whatever it is. And if you can learn to have that kind of self-control, focus and self-control, I would call it mind in the making. Also, right. I was going to say, these are also more of the skills that are in mind in the making. Yeah. So if you can have that kind of skill, you've really learned something that can stand you very well in life. So he's, he's working on it, but we, we just had the discussion today. Um, so it's still a work in progress. So he comes up with, I will give it up. He doesn't want to end in the middle of a game. He wants to get a warning. He doesn't, he needs, he doesn't need like 15 minutes and then no screen time. He needs time to really work on it because he really is, he loves Minecraft. He's working on it. Um, <laughs> and then what he said to me today was, because we had a screen time fight last night and I said, you would do so much better to just talk about it and give it up when mommy asks you to give it up. Uh, because then she'll give it back. And she says she doesn't always keep keep that. So then we talk to mommy about, he, he has to, if he's going to keep his word, you're going to keep your word. You have to only say things that you really know you're going to mean, both of you, <laughs> you know. Um, so, and, and so in that he was coming up with solutions, but also disclosing the things that he's picking up on that we probably yeah. don't always think they pick yeah. up on. And there was, there was a study, there have probably been many studies, but about parents who don't keep those, keep their word about things yeah. like that. The kids stop trusting them and it can be the smallest things like you're going to, Oh, we'll get ice cream later, but you don't get ice cream because they didn't remind you, but we have to keep our word, which yeah. is hard. I have to say my daughter is exceptional. I mean, she weathers temper tantrums about screen time that would have most of us you know, off the wall. She is really good. Uh, she is amazing, amazing, amazing parent. But all of us do those sorts of things. As of she course. Says. I'm and sure so I'll do it today. So we're all learning. And just while, you know, it's why I wrote about parent, parenthood is growth. While she's learning, he's learning. And if you can have that kind of family problem solving, and I'll go through the procedures for it, which was the third parenting skill that adolescents told me about. Here are the things that I found work about that is if you can do that ongoing problem solving you're you know you won't have the, the turmoils of adolescence or even five-year-olds you know you'll have some of them but um but they just will be different uh, mine were with my children the so stress that i had with my children when they were adolescents was good stress good trouble as john lewis might say it was good trouble good stress it wasn't break your heart stress and do you think that the family meetings and going about approaching problem solving together is part of how you guys stayed connected during? Yeah. Yes, because it's respectful. And so the, you state the problem. Number one, you state the problem. Two, you come up with as many salute. You don't blame anyone for the problem. You just state the problem. It could be your little sister is driving you crazy. It could be whatever. but. You state the problem. She takes my toys. She, you know, whatever. You state the problem. You come up with as many solutions as possible. You, as the parent, write down all those solutions and you do not judge them. You don't say that is probably the stupidest idea I've ever heard in my life, which mm -hmm. it may be, but you don't say that. You just write them down. And then after you've written them down, if it's two kids, they both come up with solutions. As one, one child, that child comes up with solutions. You write them all down. And you ask for more solutions. You have other ideas. You have other ideas. You have other ideas. And then you say, what would work about that, that idea for you? And what would work about it for me? So sometimes a solution could work very well for a child. I'll eat ice cream all day long. That would work. Mm -hmm. 
perfectly good thing. What wouldn't work for me is you'll be cranky and tired and <laughs> you won't be able to focus and um, you won't be hungry when it's time to eat other food or, you know, whatever it is. So, so it has to work for both of you. That's the second rule. Uh, so you're coming up with a problem, you're brainstorming mm-hmm. solutions, you're evaluating the solutions. Mm-hmm. And in that, you're using the skill of perspective taking. What mm-hmm. would work for you? What would work for the other person? And that's a hard skill. It's a very hard skill. And then you pick one to try and you know that it is a process, that that solution won't work forever. You don't assume that it'll work forever. It's not a magic bullet. Nothing is. Mm-hmm. But you try it. And if it doesn't work, oh, didn't work, we have another meeting. And we either fix it or come up with another solution. I love that. We do freedom freedoms lists that are pretty similar where there's no judgment in the freedoms that mm-hmm. my girls are hoping for, hoping to, mm-hmm. to have, but it's just like some of them are not hot. We, we, we evaluate how we can handle them, which ones I'm comfortable with and when I think they'll be ready for them. And one of the things I noticed in doing that is that when my kids take my perspective, they've started <laughs> to constantly show me I don't know if they're called memes or what, uh, but those like picture moving pictures where what mom sees and it's like something horrible and dangerous and what's really happening or what mom sees and it's like an outfit that looks like a string bikini and like a bandana for a top. And then what the child is really wearing. And it's like a long shirt with maybe half an inch of belly button showing. (laughs) So I'm learning that they're getting my, they're not wrong. That is my perspective probably half the time, but we haven't, we haven't looked at that in the problem solving way. It's been more like in the future thinking way. So I love that. We come up with consequences too. So if it doesn't work, what are the consequences? Yeah, that's great. And that, but you need, and the child will be in my experience. uh, I did this as a teacher before I had children. I did this as, um, as a parent, um, I've studied it in, in research. In my experience, kids will come up with worse punishments than you ever thought of. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a little severe. It doesn't have to be that strict. But it does seem like when you've come up with the consequences for what would happen if you don't meet the expectation that you agreed to set yourself, it doesn't feel as helpless. And so, and, and disrespectful and it doesn't feel forever. It feels like I made this choice and that somehow is less undermining, especially for adolescents. But I think so for four-year-olds and five-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah, I use that with little kids too. And it, it worked really quite well. I mean, it doesn't mean that there are moments where you don't listen to any of it, just have a fit at them and they have a fit at you, but of course, um, but uh, I'm glad you said that. And I think that that's, you know, always going to be true. We're always going to lose it. Yes. Yay. <laughs> One of the things I've discovered in parenting is that we're learning while they're learning. Whatever it is that they're learning, whatever the developmental task is for them, mm-hmm. we're learning it. So we're learning who we are when they're forming their first sense of who they are. We're learning to be an authority when they're first contesting us. So we're, we're learning these things too. And if we can openly embrace learning. I I have found in studies, both of teachers and of parents, those of us who are the most intentional teachers or parents make the best teachers or parents. And and kids appreciate that too. I mean, they they know they're learning and that they know we're learning. It doesn't mean that we're not an authority. It doesn't mean we're not in charge. It doesn't mean we don't have rules. It doesn't mean we're wimpy and let them do anything. We don't. This is a way of implementing the rules that is more respectful. And I think builds on the research about compliance. Mm-hmm. I love that. So in the process of trying to figure out first what the skills are in parenting, um, particularly adolescence, and then what the mindset is that stands between our using the skills and not, there's something else which is, which is a real strategy to change ourselves. When we are intentional parents, when we're learning, um, we sometimes need strategies to be able to stick to that expectation that we want to live up to. And there I found that the research of Gabriel Oettingen is really very compelling. She I downloaded that app because of you. What the, was it? Whoop. Whoop, yes. W-O-O-P. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes too. Yeah, 
she did 25 years of research thinking that if you thought positively, you would, you would have a good result. Thinking, you know, we always get told, think positively. And she found in study after study, which she kept changing the methodology, she kept replicating to see if she was making a mistake, that no, if we think positively, we're less likely to put effort into it. We're less likely to achieve our results, whether they're getting better grades or losing weight or recovering after knee surgery or whatever it is she was looking at. So she's found that, so what is it? Um, And she's found that what's important are first what she calls mental contrasting, which is you do think positively. You, Mm -hmm. You have something that you want to achieve. I don't want to threaten my children, let's say. And then you think positively, how will I feel if that happens? What's the outcome? So first is your wish. And then you think positively, what's your outcome if that, if that wish is realistic mm-hmm. um, and you want to make it happen? Well, I will not feel bad about myself because I haven't threatened my children because I know that I feel badly and I know it doesn't work and uh, so forth. And then the second O is obstacle. What's the mm-hmm. obstacle? What could stand in the way in me, not in someone else, not that my husband is obnoxious, not that my kids are obnoxious, not that the world is obnoxious. What is it in me that stands in the way? And so what's my internal obstacle? And then you figure out, well, when they want to get me, I want to get them back. Mm-hmm. Then you come up with a plan. That's the P of the whoop, an if-then plan. And this is the research of Peter Golwitzer, who's Gabriel Lotengen's husband. An if-then plan is if obstacle happens, then I will. And mm-hmm. it's just so simple. But it is. It's so simple. Tested it works. Tested it. Yeah. And so wish outcome, obstacle, plan. And so, okay, now we know what the parenting skills are. Now we know the mindset that can make these more likely, plus asset-based parenting and so forth, and not trying to fix it for kids. And then what's our strategy for actually making sure we stick to this? And I think that uh, Gabriel Otengen's research is one of the best answers I've seen in looking at years of research. So it's, it's always a journey. My grown-up grandson will have children. And the story continues. You know, it's where I just feel that it's so exciting to keep learning how to be a better parent. Because in the course of learning to, how to be a better parent, you're learning how to be a better person. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. There's information in the show notes about different books and studies and apps and websites that Ellen referenced. It should be helpful for everybody and have a wonderful week.